Good morning and welcome to the Well and Green podcast. Today I am bringing you episode two of Peak with I Will Dominate. Episode one last week was with Mithi. And uh, if you have ideas for who you want to see on episode three, please hit me up on Twitter, Twitter, uh, Mind Games Weldon. This episode and all episodes of Peak so far are brought to you by my Mac program, mindgames.gg slash MAC, the Mindfulness Acceptance Commitment online video training program that I created that mimics what it is that I do with pro teams. You can find it at the URL I mentioned, and you should use the code podcast. Use the code podcast to signify that you're coming from here, from the audio experience, and uh, and to get a little you know discount as a reward for using the code so that I know that you heard about this on the podcast. It's a 49, 47 video series. So it's seven modules with seven sessions each approximately meant to take the place, take place over seven weeks. And it's essentially what I went through with CLG, TSM, and G2, uh, about halfway with G2, what I was working on with them to teach them mental resilience for performance. It works for any performance. The idea is mindfulness-based sport performance enhancement and it's, it doesn't really need to be sport because I've gotten a lot of comments from people who are doing crafts, studies, management, who have used the same techniques essentially to improve their performance in life. And each video essentially is composed of a mindfulness training session and then a lecture, like kind of like a mini TED talk explaining whatever the day's concept of mental resilience is. We go through the core core attributes of mental resilience, which is mindfulness, acceptance, and commitment. And we go through them in a cyclical manner kind of going delving into you know a specific one on, on certain weeks and then all of them all together deeper and deeper in the weeks that follow. Check it out if you're interested, mindgames.gg slash MAC, and let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to episode two of Peak. I'm joined by oh, I Will Dominate, and the theme of the show and the theme of Peak as like a series is the idea of contradicting this well-balanced versus imbalanced life uh, mantra that you hear where everybody has to have uh, kind of like a well-balanced eight to five, you know, weekends free, et cetera, et cetera, and that it's somehow unhealthy or wrong to do one thing for 14 hours a day, sleep, and wake up the next day and do it again for three or four months, which contradicts a lot of things that we see in, in high-performance uh, science, such as things like flow state and elite performance and the mastery of a craft, which are which are things that are very beneficial and interesting for humans to do, and which usually accelerate them, you would say, beyond the average in other things that they undertake after they master a craft or a skill. And so Peak is is a series designed to like uncover this idea of what it looks like to all in on something in terms of an un- imbalanced life and what skills you and transferable skills you get from that practice that you can bring elsewhere. And also to uncover performance frameworks because I've worked with over 100 professional players now and to a T, all of them who've reached the elite level have had a performance framework that got them there. And it's been very interesting to kind of discover those on my own. And so I've been looking for other elite performers to kind of like do it in public and share with you. And I Will Dominate has agreed to join me today. So thank you. Yep. And welcome. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm excited. I want to see if I actually am the first out of the hundred players that you've worked with that does not have a <laughs> performance framework. Yeah, that's so gonna we'll that's gonna be it. It's like I don't know, man. <laughs> okay. I just like uh logged into the game. Like, and- nah, I just yeah, I just smoked hella weed and just didn't play you know i don't know i don't know what happened how did i get here i think everybody's going to tell me after this comment to to do uh, forgiven you know because um, everybody's yeah. talking about how he just like goes to greece and like sits on a beach for <laughs> six months and then logs in and he's the best you know to carry in the west or whatever um shoot i lost my internet for a second there uh, okay i thought that was me for a sec nope 
probably my kids just found their iPads next door and uh, jumped on the Wi-Fi. Dear God. Nice. <clears throat> All right. So um, let's kick it off. Usually the first question I start with is um, I'm trying to define where the mental shift occurred between when you were playing video games for entertainment purposes and when you realized that you were training a craft or training a sport or training in some way. So when was the moment when you were like kind of just like playing video games, when it shifted for you mentally, I mean mentally your identity, where you were like, okay, I'm not doing this. I can tell you, ex- yeah. I can tell you exactly Everybody when. Can. I can tell you exactly when. And so um, when I was 15, I started playing, or when I was 14, I started playing Dota. Um, and back then, like there was like a, a chat room. It was like a chat room, but it had a bot in it. And it was a network called TDA, which is called Team Dota All-Stars. And it was just like, random games it was like public games that you would join but um these were actually filtered like before you'd have people leaving and whatever but in tda that was the first um group where you'd actually get filtered out if you like left games if you were like ridiculously toxic whatever they would actually kick you out um and you know we i played that for for a while and then eventually i started playing um this league called the in-house league which was the first competitive um in-house dota league in the world and this was in 2015 and or, sorry not 2015 2005 sorry <laughs> and it was um, ran by ucross who is a uh, he was actually just a dentist he was just a, a dentist that also had a, a background in programming and he had this amazing bot and this this great system this guy was actually a genius he had a, a great bot great system it was the most well moderated thing that i've ever seen um to this day and he and it and it had a rank letter and everything so this was the first time wow. you could actually be a uh, like you could you had a ranked system and all the best thousand dota players um in north america were like invited to this league um and yeah you'd queue up th- for a game through the bot and it would like assort teams based on mmr it literally was like riot's whole matchmaking but in a like text bot in in, in a like an IRC warcraft channel. yeah so um oh in the know, warcraft client and, in the Warcraft Got client. it, got it. So it was a bot, like, in, in the... In the, the Right, right, I remember yeah. these rooms. Okay, And eventually they, they, they moved um, to a, a IRC. To there was something called IH... Yeah, an IHCS, and it was an, um, an, an IRC channel that had uh, a fusion between Europeans and North Americans because that became, like... They, there became a way that you could play um, on lower ping through, like, Arena or whatever. Um, and you were able to actually play versus Europeans um, with reasonable ping. So that was, like, a huge deal when that came out. But, um, yeah, essentially when I joined this league, I didn't really get vouched because I was very good. I was just like part of a group of like internet friends and they were good. So I got vouched in because one of the people I was friends with was like one of the best players, um, in North America at that time. And when I joined the league, I was super bad. There was like a thousand, um, like 1,038 spots in the entire league. And I was like rank a thousand, you know, I was like one of the absolute worst players in the league. And I just been playing less time. What, than, what position than people. were you playing by the way? Do you remember? I played, I played everything, but I, what I eventually was your became hero? like Harry. My favorite. I mean, I, I like Dota. The like way it worked back then is everyone, I, everyone played everything. Yeah. The things that I was best at eventually w- was actually jungling because jungling and Dota was more complex. Like mm, yeah. people didn't understand pulling like that all, all the, the things that are so standard now in dota were like mind-blowing like groundbreaking ideas that came through like when when it became like, like you pulling. could pull the, the, yeah pulling the creeps to the jungle camps and then like uh champions like beastmaster or like chen you'd eat tank you'd like eat the trees and then you'd pull like one wave from camp to, so there was a skill involved with jungling and not that many people would you know get down all the timings like it was something that took a lot of practice to really perfect and even back then the aggro was like a little buggy. Sometimes things would de-aggro for no reason. Like it was just not a, a perfect um, thing. 
So, yeah, like I ended up playing playing jungle for like teams and stuff like that, but I could really play everything. It was actually funny because over my career, I became just like in Dota, I was like a carry player at the beginning. Like I would I would be like the person sitting in the side lane, like farming, right. playing like Spectre or something like that, and then eventually join the team fight and try to one v five. Like that was my role. Um, because back then I was considered to have good mechanics, and then as I got older, I became more like a jungler. And then even as I progressed through League of Legends, at the beginning I was like a mechanical player, and I became more of a uh, like more Strategic. of like a cerebral player. Yeah, l- later on in my career. But when I was 15, there was a point where I started like I really just back then like shit talk was brutal. You know, like people would be like I was I was like 14, 15, and I, my voice anything. was still super high. Yeah, yeah, people would so everyone was just like oh, you, what are you, like, some little faggot? Like, all this shit, like, they would, just, they would just go in on you. Like, is that a girl? Like, all this shit, you know? Like, just the worst shit. Like, you, like, kill yourself, you little, like, piece of shit. Like, it was just, it was so... It was like, like when, the, Xbox, the when Xbox Live came out and all of a sudden yeah, all the Halo was, players could, could like, yeah, talk to each insane. other. It was like, nuts. Yeah, people, like, N-words Completely flying all unmodded. over. Like, yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. Um, and even though there was, like, some toxicity moderation, it, it wasn't, like... Yeah, it wasn't anything like Riot's toxicity moderation, which is like pretty strict by the standards that um, were set a long time ago yeah. in, in online gaming. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to be like really good to just beat all these players. And I remember just like starting grinding and I was just I wanted to be rank one so fucking bad in this in this league on on this just bot. Like it wasn't even you didn't get anything if you were rank How, one. So it wasn't like it was. Torn- what is the first thing that you modified? Like when you hit that moment and you were like, OK, I want to get rank one. I assume that you like you stopped giving in to certain like practices or tendencies or habits or whatever that you had and you started doing like something else. So you started like, you stopped like giving into a certain emotion and you started doing something else. Like what, what was the, what was the, sh- um, what was the shift in behavior that your shift in identity actually triggered? Like that kicked it off the climb. For me, I think the main thing was just being like super, super like self-critical of like everything mm-hmm. and just being like um, really analytical about what, champions actually could do like try to figure out like different combos like try to understand the metagame like literally everything that i could think of i would try to improve on i'm like okay this person's better than me in mechanics like how do i become mechanically better what do i do like how does he combo like how does he line up his spells like how does he angle his skill shots when does he throw them things like that things that are pretty obvious in league now like in dota that that was the first game like that so people have to figure all that stuff out like what i see is like this shift where like you essentially are saying like you 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 allow yourself to criticize your own skill set and don't assume that you are like good at something. Yeah, no, I, I I knew I was was really bad, but I just like like back then. I mean, it was just on the rank letter. I just knew statistically I was really bad. But um, yeah, to to get better, I like it, it, there was so many different avenues to get better that I just tried to get better at like literally yeah, everything. Right, yeah. So I would. So you had a like, ladder. Like, you had a ladder to like basically say like that you were trash. You didn't have to. You didn't have to yeah. like mentally go yeah. there. Okay. Yeah, but but it was okay for me because I knew that I'd played less time than the other people, so I didn't feel like super bad about it. I wasn't like, damn, I'm like just like stupid or something. I'm like, yeah, well, all these people have played so much more than me. I've been playing like three or four months. Of course, I'm not going to be. You were like, like as I'm good relatively as good compared to the time investment. Yeah, for the, I, I felt so like could, yeah, that, that's that's exactly you could how hold it was. that I cockiness like I was, there as your ambition. Yeah, and and also just I don't know, like growing up. I mean, I think I had good parenting. I had like decently high self esteem, so I was like, oh, you can be like good at anything you put your mind to, type thing. Okay. Like I actually believed that, right? So I was like, okay, I'm gonna put my mind to this, and I actually want to be super good. So I mean, I I would like pretend I was sick, take days off school, like do anything to just play as many games as possible. And yeah, I mean, when I when I did hit rank one, I had the most games played out of everyone in the league too. So like I was just and and I was going to school, like I was a high school kid, so. 
I was really. And you actually went to college, so you must not have failed out of high school or anything. I mean, no, I mean, I I didn't, I didn't have like terrible grades. Like, I had like a like a B average in in high school, (laughs) but I was good at music, so I was able to get into like a pretty good college just based off like musical talent rather than uh, clarinet and saxophone. Okay, so I played. I played classical clarinet and I played saxophone for jazz okay. bands and things like that. And I guess something that was useful was like in in um, like jazz bands, there are pieces that do incorporate clarinet, but a clarinet isn't like a standard instrument within a jazz band. Absolutely. So sometimes like like there's um yeah there's a bunch of uh, pieces where there would be a clarinet solo, but you like they would have to just you know have somebody play it on soprano sax or something that wasn't quite right. So I think that that was one of my advantages since I did play two instruments i could like fall back to the clarinet i could do like a clarinet solo um which i guess jazz teachers really liked abusing so you could you could like earn a chair in a jazz band that like with that asset basically they'd say like okay well we want the guy at least who can pull out the clarinet for this whole awesome yeah yeah so it was was good um so that's that's pretty much how i got into college like i didn't have the the grade requirement to get to get into university of miami at the time was 3.5 i had like a 2.9 so I did not have a very high GPA. I'd like B minus. Well, those things or are whatever, suggestions but. anyway. I mean, I didn't meet <laughs> I didn't meet my university one either. Um, but uh, yeah, but I had pretty good SAT score stuff, and yeah. just played music. So yeah. All right. So that was that was the moment. The next question I ask usually refers to trying to understand what your support structure, and this is going to be a little different for you because you're not a pro right now. So I'm curious both. <laughs> What is your support structure now as an entertainment business performer? So you're a performer, right? But you're a performer in terms of entertainment and business. And you have to have high performance in business to succeed in business. That's true. Um, but it's not a zero-sum game like competing where like there's a winner and a loser, period. Yeah. Like everybody in business can make money. There's kind of enough of it to go around at some point. Um, mm-hmm. And then I want to talk about what it looked like when you were competing. Maybe we, we can do that first. But let me explain, first of all, the kind of three pillars I'm going to look for. Uh and this isn't based on any science or anything. It's based more on my experience of, of other people and understanding elite performance. But basically, I'm looking for three things. Number one, describe to me your relationship with your peer group. So as a like journey partners, the people who are like in it with you. And these are the people that have your very short-term relationships with this. Because when you go to another team or you go to somebody else or you go to like a different group or whatever, you kind of like leave them behind and you join new ones. So how did you see your, or and how motivating and supportive and, and how did you relate with your journey partners as you were going along? And then the second one is your cheerleaders. So these are people who like you regardless of whether you win or lose, right? They like, they like, uh, shoot, is it Christian or Christian? Mm-hmm. Or like what, what? Uh, Christian. Christian. Okay. I did say your name right. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. I always try to check that before, before the, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, <laughs> sessions. But anyway, the people who like Christian, like, and have nothing to do with anything mm-hmm. else, right? And whether you win or you lose, like, they're going to like you, period. Um, so mm-hmm. they're like your cheerleaders. And usually that's family members. It can be other people too. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. mentors. So these are people who, they don't necessarily have to walk the same path as you, but like they help you walk your path by giving you perspective in the long term. So um, try to look back to when you were competing and identify for me if you had any of those pillars or if you didn't have them and how much part they played, like you can give me percentages, you can give me ratios. You can say like, they didn't matter at all. But then I'm going to ask you to describe like your, like how it is you would interact with like, for example, your cheerleaders at home or not. So then I could try to determine Mm -hmm. too, if that was the case. Mm -hmm. So when I started competing or when I started like before I was like a official pro or whatever, I did the whole online thing. So it was like about six months where I competed in all these online tournaments. And that's kind of how I like gained no- notoriety and put myself in a position to be picked up by like a top three team. 
Um, this so is in League of Legends, I wasn't right? Living, Dota. Yeah. This, okay. Yeah, this is in League of Legends. Um, and I did actually compete in Dota briefly, but um, not for not for a long time, and the prize money was almost nothing, and I never attended like a real LAN, so um, I didn't really consider that like I was in esports, you know, you know. But um, yeah, like when I was when I started competing in League of Legends, like started going to events and stuff, like I guess my like cheerleaders um well i, I guess I, I don't i i was gonna ask you this uh is it's a can a cheerleader and a mentor be the same person yeah okay because i would consider that. yeah i would consider my uh my mom a cheerleader and a mentor like she always awesome. thought like she would always think i was like the best you know like she was always like oh yeah he's like like because she would see like i would compete and she learn enough about the game to like be able to tell if I was like playing well or not. And she was just like proud of my performance. So she was definitely like empowering in the fact that she would always tell me like, yeah, you're always good. Like on stage, you're always good in clutch moments. And it made me believe that. And it made me like feel like obligated to do that on stage, you know, mm-hmm. like, cause I wanted to, to showcase my talent or whatever. Um, and then, and then I think that she was also like a mentor in terms of like when there were like problems with my teams, things like that, or like I would have problems with my career when I got banned, things like uh, things like that. Like I would talk to her and she would explain to me, um, just like her perspective, like just give that like um, that lens. Yeah, yeah, that lens that that um, like I guess some, something that who suffered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like an older older person's uh, viewpoint on things. And I also just always like, I mean, some people have different relationships with. Um, their parents but to me like my mom is somebody who i hold like really high esteem in terms of intelligence like Mm -hmm. obviously everyone has has, like their problems but in terms of just like practical intelligence she's super smart to talk to but then besides for being like just conversationally smart she went to yale um undergrad she went to yale law school uh yeah she had no money and she became like uh she's now the um She's she's now actually the chair of the trust and estate and tax department at Greenberg Truck, so she has like a good position. So she pretty much like was successful and had nothing to start off, um, and she did really well acad- academically. Wow. So I always valued her like a, opinion really high because you know compared to other people, she was you know I, clearly yeah, successful. Just, yeah, by all yeah, metrics. Yeah, she was clearly successful. Yeah, and uh, and you also have to take into the fact the disadvantage of like being a woman in like the workplace and to get to the point where you're and in the, the chair of the department. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 and especially like when you're talking about like 80s, 70s, 80s, like this is a yeah much more uh, I guess sexist. A, a much yeah, m- much more sexist. This is before time the Me well, Too so. movement, you know, like <laughs> yeah. So I, I would definitely say that she was both a cheerleader and a mentor. And then another one of my like I guess cheerleaders was was my best friend Mike, who I've uh, got into the game with. Like we okay. we started the first team together, like a three versus three team, and we won actually a couple tournaments um, in three versus three when that was like the only thing that there were tournaments for. Um, and he always like, he always told me like out of all the players he played with, he thought I was the best player in the world. That's what he actually wow. believed um, based off like what we had seen. And, you know, it made me, it made me believe it and it made me feel like I could just, yeah, get to the top. And I mean, there was at like, I guess the peak um, like Hanover or whatever. I mean, that was the best tournament that had happened at the time we got second. So it was probably pretty close at that time. So, I, I guess that was another thing that just empowered me. I, I think I had a lot of people in my corner just believing in me, just being like, yeah, you can do it. Yeah. You can and then do you the got best. the and results it, with that handover. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, Oh my so. gosh. Like it, 
they're right. It could actually yeah. happen. Yeah. Yeah. It could actually happen. Like I could actually, you know, be pro. And then obviously like when Koreans started taking over, I'm like, okay, best player in the world. That's probably faker. But like, you know, I always felt like I was good at least. So didn't that, um, in that infamous video that came out, didn't they have the clip where you were just like, I am faker yeah. <laughs> screaming. <laughs> that was actually like, that was actually like, like two weeks ago or like a month ago. Oh, really? That's, okay. There you go. Yeah. yeah. That's, that was, that was a recent clip. So it's, but, um, it's still there. You're still aiming for it. <laughs> No, I mean, I was just, I was just playing it up for the stream, but it, it was a pretty sick pillar. I, I will say that I was pretty hyped off that pillar. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just I'm easily excitable, obviously. But so that would be like cheerleader and mentor. What's the third pillar? Uh, peer, like your peer group or your journey partners. So in oh. educational research, yeah, yeah, like teammates. Uh, this this is like the largest factor for success, um, for like academic results, basically more than mm-hmm. parenting and teaching actually uh is the peer group so like if you have a good peer group like the the correlation with like getting into ivy league schools and 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 like success in the workplace and income and like social uh, socioeconomic status like it's just mapped to peer group more causally than like almost any other variable in terms of like academic mm-hmm. success so of course in sport we think like maybe this could be the case too in high performance so i'm just curious mm-hmm. like with your journey partners and your peer groups like did you have relationships uh was it natural um and what is it what does it look like like right now or what did it look like when you were competing i guess uh, also I so as a, well as i think i got very lucky in the in the respect that like all my teammates always like trusted me a lot and had like confidence in me so i never had to feel like i know some some players certainly like they like i know for example keith you know he went through times where he felt like his teammates didn't feel that he was good and that right. made him think less of himself but i think that my teammates were all like pretty empowering or they like you know they would hype me up and they would or they thought i was good so that would help me get through that like i never had to deal with any like oh do my teammates actually believe in me do they trust me things like that that never was an issue it was mainly just um yeah like could we make it work as a team so i think that i i was pretty lucky in that respect like, i didn't play with anyone who was like a huge asshole or like super egotistical or was you know like yeah just talk talk down to me or anything like that so um in my career at least i was i was lucky in, in that respect so it's kind of like uh it, it wasn't necessarily like d- developmental but at least it wasn't damaging in a way you didn't have you yeah, didn't have like yeah. bad eggs and bad seeds and bad experiences that that mm-hmm. would like that would yeah, like trip th- up your career in a way mm-hmm. okay definitely cool okay so um the next section basically is uh self-diagnosis so a lot of people wonder like how how effective this is but um, there is, uh, so my, my background is in physical activity research and, uh, that's what I did my master's in. And in physical activity research, there's a big question. Like if you have somebody with a pedometer on, you're measuring how far they walk. Uh, and then you have them write a diary and you say, what is your physical activity for the day? There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a school of thought that says like, well, it's better to have the objective measure, right? The actual measure of how many steps they have. You have the accelerometer, you know exactly how much they moved, how much they wiggled, how much energy they expended. Turns out, that a diary is actually fairly accurate. Um, so they, there's these comparison studies for like self-diagnosis or self-description versus um, versus like like objective measures. And and the question is always like what you know like how close are these things in terms to like true accuracy? And it turns out that there's a lot of self-diagnosed uh, like things out there in terms of measurements that are very useful and very predictable. In my experience. Mm-hmm pros so pro players who have gotten to the top and who are elite performers are quite good at saying what their strengths and weaknesses are 
Um, because mm-hmm. in an objective thing like sport, there's just no arguing with it. Like it's just like you just have to know that this is your weakness and this is your strength because mm-hmm. you lose and you win. There's like there's like always mm-hmm. a metric that's telling you uh this is the re- this is reality this is reality this is reality this is reality and you, you just have to accept it mm-hmm. so that is why uh i go in with this like basically you tell me what i should know for my job right which is what what would you put in your category as mental strengths the things that got you to where you were as a pro that allowed you to become pro when there's thousands millions of people who train the same amount of hours mm-hmm. as you and never make it out of gold and then consequentially or like not consequentially that's the wrong word the opposite whatever what are your um what are your weaknesses that you feel like uh that you have either overcome or that you have overcome to the point where they're like they don't hamper you or that still exist and and you think like do uh that either yeah that just like interfere with what you're trying to do mm-hmm. um so you so the strengths first and then the weaknesses or the weaknesses first or how do you want to do it I mean just whatever triggers in your mind first that you want to talk okay. about like, so when when i when i've started competing i think the thing that gave me the advantage at least um if we're talking about like actual competition and um like on stage i always felt like i was more willing to like go for plays than other junglers i don't know how it is now because i feel like that this has kind of been weeded out over time but i remember um like when i played there were some players that like i could tell in like a big match they just wouldn't gank you know they would just make the safe play every time like you could always kind of default to like the okay, I'm going to clear my camps and then deep ward and then go back and clear my camps. Like you can default into that mindset instead of being like, okay, I think this guy is killable. I'm going to like try to, I'm going to do something that might be slightly inefficient in terms of pathing, but I think that this play will work and like commit to the play. So I think that was probably my biggest strength as a player. Like I would just make shit happen at LCS where players that could be higher solo queue rated than me or something like that. Like technically they might be like better mechanical players, they just wouldn't attempt to gank as much as I would, or they wouldn't attempt to make plays. Um, would, so I think that was my strength. Would you see these same players in scrims able to make plays, and then they would go on stage, and you would yeah, know definitely. that they wouldn't? Yeah, I wouldn't know that they wouldn't, but they just wouldn't. Right. Like, I wouldn't go into a game and, like, disrespect them and be like, oh, this guy just won't gank because he's, like, a pussy or something. You know, like, I, that, that wouldn't be my mindset. But when when we played the game, like, I would rewatch the, the replay, you know, I'd re- rewatch all the games, and... I'd be like, why is this guy not ganking here? Or like, why why is this guy recalling here? Like, you could tell that their nerves were making them do things that were like overly passive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I was pretty decent at being like, this is like the paths that I took in scrims that worked out. Like, these are like the ideas that I have. These are this is my my knowledge of the matchups. I'm going like if something seems right to me, I would just do it if it seemed right, and I wouldn't get in my own head and be like, oh, what happens if I get counter-ganked? And where, where does the basis ATP? for this ability to handle pressure on stage and, and this fearlessness, like, where, where's the basis for that strength? Is it is it in your musical career or a combination of that yeah. and your parenting? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's parenting and then my musical career. Like, because that was the first time I actually got nervous before, you know? Like, in, in my life, the first time that I really got nervous was when I, um, you know, had to play music in front of a lot of people, right? right. Like, I had to perform a, specifically... Not when I was in groups, right? Because you, like, if you're in a group and you mess up, like in a band, it's not really super noticeable, and it's not like, oh shit, it's if your you're clarinet, fault. But it's, it's no. one, yeah, if you're trumpet or yeah. timpani, maybe like, yeah, may, maybe. But um, when I started having like solos, like in in high school and like the end of middle school, I started kind of being like a standout um performer in terms of music. Like that was just my thing. I cared about it more than the other kids in my school. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to like a musical like school. Um. 
in, in the summer, I took like a summer program at a musical school called Interlochen, which is like one of the, um, it's in Michigan. It's one of the best musical schools. So that it was just like something that I really committed okay. to. And I started um, getting a lot of solos. Right. And when I had solos, you know, you're mic'd up like you, you, you have to stand up. No, number one, like everyone else is sitting down, you stand up and you're, you, you know, you're mic'd up all the tensions on you, the spotlights on you, whatever. That's like when I was first like, shit, if I fuck up, everyone is going to hear it and everyone's going to think that I'm terrible. So that was the first time I got nervous. And I think that, you know, I did have uh, like bad performances before or like performances that weren't up to like my stand. I never had like a crash and burn where I like couldn't play or I couldn't finish, but you know, I would have, maybe I would have a squeak or I would miss a note or like, you know, the timing of it or the rhythm of it would be, it would be off slightly. I think having those experiences made me like comfortable playing on stage in those experiences. So in the progression of you from your very first solo to like these, these, these like, uh, this like series of solos that you're kind of describing in your history. At what point did you like, when does the joy come in for you? So would it be like after you would finish it and you would like enjoy the feeling of doing it? Would it happen during the performance? Even at some point, was it the anticipation? Did you enjoy that part? Like what for you is really the part? No, for me, it was really gratifying was like when the people that like, practiced with me and like knew my level like you know for example like when i was home my mom would hear me play the solo a million times um my like when i was in like band class or whatever like if i had the solo they, they, my my uh my band members and like my music teacher would hear me play it a million times right, right. my i had private lessons my private lesson teacher would hear me play it a million times it's like when i'd perform and i would exceed their expectations that made me feel good where they're like wow like you normally like were like kind of shaky at that part but you nailed it like on stage you know mm-hmm. that always was like the thing where i was like nice i like did it you know i can do it type type yeah. of thing um so so when when we research like things like nerves or cortisol in performance um it mm-hmm. kind of doesn't matter what the stage is it doesn't matter if it's stage for swimming or the stage for league of legends the stage for uh you know mm-hmm. like dancing right it's it's still like yeah. you're performing in front of it's it's like the idea of judgment in the mind is is universal mm-hmm. and that's where the stress time comes from. So it makes sense that this would be a transferable thing. That like this mm-hmm. go for it gear that you have or this like on stage fearlessness mm-hmm. would just transfer right over because you already learned the coping mechanisms and and what it is that you mm-hmm. enjoy about that process. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I I guess for the for the negatives like I I there was certain champions that I never felt completely comfortable on that I would like always I'd always find ways like to work around it so it wouldn't be a liability for my team. But like one champion that I remember like was just hit and miss. And I never liked playing something that I thought was hit and miss. You know, if something was like hit or miss for me, I would not want to play it on stage. Um, but I, I did like play Lee on stage like a couple times, but I never liked how it felt like, especially with like how our team played. I never liked it. So I would always just kind of be like, maybe I'm not the best mechanically. I have to like find counters to the mechanical champions. Um, and like I need to be able to play them enough where like I can default to it, but I always try to like put myself in the best position in terms of like, okay, if Lee Sin is in the meta and I don't want to play Lee Sin, which is uh, people are gonna find this funny because I play so much Lee Sin on my stream now, but um, if if Lee Sin is in the meta and I don't want to play Lee Sin, I always wanted to to like either bait them into picking it and just have something that I really like the other side of it because I don't think that in League of Legends like there's. I mean, obviously, there are some champions that are new, like Zoe or Kaiser or whatever, that come out and they're just ridiculous. Like ri- ridiculous. Yeah. 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 But um, <sighs> there was never anything like that That for jungle. And I guess the only time that I felt like something super mechanically mechanical came into the meta that you had to play, it was Nidalee. And I just, 
I don't know. That champion just felt good for me anyway. So I guess I just got lucky in that respect. But I, I just I think that as my career got went on, I felt like I was, you know, I felt like my advantage was was definitely the the mental side of it, and I didn't think that my advantage was mechanical anymore, which is not how my career started. Like when I when I started my career against players like Saint against players like Odwin, I felt like you had this mechanical. I always advantage. felt yeah. Yeah, I felt like I had the mechanical advantage and I needed to catch up on the other stuff. I'm like, I need to know as much as they do because they've been playing longer than me and they've been competing for longer than me. So this, so, this discomfort that you had, was it, um, would you, would, I mean, how would you describe it in terms of like how it played out in terms of, in terms of like the social dynamics of the team? Was it a mental block where you were like, uh, you felt like if you would, if you accepted it, it that if you accepted that it wasn't true and you grounded out, do you feel now looking back like this wouldn't have been a problem like you would have mastered these champions and then so clearly it was like an identity issue then or do you feel no, like it was actually weird. it was true no no it was weird because my teammates had like a lot of confidence in me on mechanical champions they'd like always hype me up to play it and i would just always kind of like mask it by being like no but i always be least in with elise so just give me a lease every time and i'll just shit on the lease in anyway like yeah. i would always I always wanted to be good enough at the mechanical champions that my teammates had confidence in me having them because I never wanted to feel like I was a liability, you know? Right. I never wanted to, like, so I would play them in scrims and I would, like, pop off in scrims and I would always just try to, like, get them to the level where my teammates were like, okay, you can play that, you know? Like, if if we need them to play it, we can play it. But I always would also, like, subconsciously, or not subconsciously, but to to myself, I would try to, yeah, consciously, I would try to put myself in a position where I didn't have to do something I was uncomfortable with. So even if even if my teammates thought I was comfortable, I would just be like, yeah, I would just kind of like give reasoning as to why something else is better. And I didn't I didn't think the reasoning was untrue, but I kind of like downplayed my uncomfortability. And just to be clear on my end, pick. this isn't discomfort like is it, it was was it discomfort like you didn't want to put the team on your back with a playmaker that was high risk, high reward because uh, you did no, that. You did I'd, that in I'd other liked, cases. You liked putting the team on your back or playmaking. Yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. It was mainly just like I didn't want to like fuck up i didn't i didn't want to like fuck up like a kick flash or something on lisa because like one of those can just lose you a game like you play something bad enough on lisa and you could just lose yourself the game and i didn't like the pressure that came with um a champion that like i like champions that once you get ahead you just are ahead right like you can just play it out if you just play out the situation normally it's like comforting you just win right right so i I love champions like you know gragas vi etc where you'd outscale like i love being on the scaling side because then if you got ahead you just win Mm -hmm. whereas lisa it feels like you have to outplay them continuously throughout the game that's at least how i felt um, getting ahead means that your your kick flash is going to be lethal uh and you're going to survive yeah exactly your kick flash is going to be like you die and but you still yeah you die instantly yeah yeah Yeah. so um, but you still got you're still the initiator, so you got to kick flash them. Yep, got it. Yep, yep. That was my mentality. Okay. Um, how do you learn new skills? And so this is kind of like the final question that that I that I go through normally because you know my first sessions with players are like an hour, limited to an hour, so we just can't get into it you know very much more. Mm-hmm. But when I say how do you learn new skills, I mean you have something that you want to pick up. Do you? are you aware of your system and if you're not aware of your system what are the behaviors or habits that you think that you do that 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 like gets you to pick up new skills and i mean and i don't mean like like paltry skills i mean like to to the to be able to play at the elite level right like how do you bring something Mm -hmm. up to to standard as far as like what you would play on stage as a performer Mm -hmm. um well the first thing that i like normally the way it works is 
you don't like come up with everything by yourself. I mean, there are definitely champion picks that I started in NA, but there was also champion picks that I didn't start in NA. And like when I would have to pick something up, like if I knew I had to get better at something, it would always be because I saw somebody else do it and I like saw the potential in it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would try to just, um, yeah, I would just do basic things like watch, watch somebody else play. I would just like take the replay and I'd watch it from their side. Find a model. Or I would, um, yeah, I would, I would definitely find a model and do all that stuff. Like when I was in season five, one of the huge thing was LPL private streams. Not not many people abuse that, but there was private streams of every single player's perspective that played in LPL for the whole 2015 season. So Peter, who is my coach, who is also Chinese, he could get me all the private streams because like the site is impossible to navigate, you know, um, right. if you don't know Chinese. Um, and I would just watch like is this the, the is this the is this the season that he won coach of the split. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Split. Like that's that was yeah. his. That's why he went. Everybody was wondering why did he win coach of the split. Apparently, he was. Uh, I mean, essentially, because we got first place. Right, we yeah. got first place in the regular season, and then whoever gets first place normally gets coach of the split. That's <laughs> like generally how it goes. Or if you have like a really bad roster and your team overperforms, or like yeah, something like that. You know, then you get coach of the split. Like for example, with Song and Immortals, everyone thought that roster was going to be terrible, and then when they started winning, it's like okay, you get it. But um, yeah, I would watch like uh, private streams a lot. Um. And I would just like, yeah, just try to figure out like what people were doing, like how they were like what their mentality was. And then I would try to like view it as, okay, you can learn something from every single player's perspective. Even if uh, even if I thought a player was like terrible, right? Like even if there was an LCS jungler, was like a 10th place jungler, if they were playing a pick, like I could tell if they knew something about it that I didn't. So so I would watch a VOD of them play and I would just try to take in like every little thing that they did, like in terms of just like I, I would actually like write down um what their path was like so i would just be like so how many camps did they clear and like i would think about like the jungle matchup and just try to find reasoning as to why they played it like that and then see so you if, look like, at their decisions and then you try to figure mm-hmm. out like what is the rationale behind that like what are they thinking to come up with yeah, those decisions yeah, yeah. understand yeah. their decision so, matrix. Uh, yeah that was definitely the the first thing that i did um was uh, i would just try to get like an idea of what their mindset is and like how they played champions. And then I would just like do basic things like just watch how they comboed, etc. Um, see how like wary they are of certain abilities, like how they played out a fight. Um, and then I would, um, after that I would just put it into practice. I would just scrim and I would just, tr- just try to put everything that I learned um, into like an actual situation and then see like how it looked from my team. Then I would watch myself after. So you so watch the VOD. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and then I'll just compare what I like, how I saw my, because then it's it's way easier to be objective if you're watching yourself, and then you watch like somebody else just played it um, as well. Like you can kind of just see like, and you didn't the, you didn't have a double screen with like the model there in your your own vod. You you had it in your mind. You had their model. Yeah, and then you compared it. Well, to I would them. I would I actually only had one monitor. I would just have it on different tabs. I would just have it on different tabs, like because we had um, access to all of our own replays. Mm-hmm. So I would just watch mine and then I'd watch theirs and then I'd watch mine. Like I, I think I did a lot more replay review than the average player because I remember even as far back as season one when like there weren't even actual replays. Like there was just like VODs of tournaments. Like I was when I was before I was actually like on Dignitas before I was like a real, real pro. I mean, I was like I, I had a pro contract and I was on like the sixth best team in NA, but I wasn't a, a pro because at the time the only the top three teams went to every single event. Right. right? So Back then, I'd, I was already watching replays. I was watching replays of whoever was in the finals of the tournament. So if it was Odin versus St. Vicious, I would watch their replays. And I would see what they did, how they path, like what like skills they maxed. Just like basic things like that, which a lot of people just didn't do for some reason. I don't know why. Yeah, it's not. I wouldn't say that it's common. 
But I, I mean, it's common for high performers, but I wouldn't say that it was common in League of Legends at all. You're right. Mm-hmm. Um, so one other question I had about your mirror, which is like when you're watching your own VOD, but before you get to the VOD part, when you actually go into the game, did you ever, ever have a problem remembering what it is that you want to train? Or was it your saturation in the study of the model of this other person's play, like had so many elements of the game in your mind that when you would go into your own game, you would like remember all of the stuff that you were like trying to to do and to like work on? Or like, did you have a system for like remembering what it is you wanted to improve on in this particular game so that you wouldn't forget it and get to the end of the game and be like, oh shoot, I was going to practice this thing. The only thing that I would really like take note of where I'd be like, okay, this is like what I, I want to just know is like the path like that they took, like yep. what camps they cleared in what order. That was the only thing where I was like, okay, this is definite. And then I kind of viewed it as like everything after that is going to be changing based off team compositions, things like that. So and the rest the of it was just like change. automatic, basically. Yeah, I would just kind of just try to pick up things. You know, I'd just try to watch intensely and focus and just try to pick up on whatever I could. You know, I wouldn't be like, oh, I need to get better at this. I need to get better at that. It was just like, okay, what are they thinking? What are they doing? Like, why are they doing it? And then just trying to just see, like, if they go for a play, how they how they set it up. Like, I could try to tell off the minimap. Is he, like, doing this because of wave pressure? Like, how, how early is he deciding that he's going to make, make this play? Like, those types right, of right. things. I would just try to... Um, and I would just try to like put myself in their shoes and like pause. I would pause it and then I would look at the map and I'd be like, okay, if I was here and I had this information, like what would I actually do? And I would try to think what I would actually do without before, before I would actually watch the result. So like when I, if I knew there was like a situation where it's like, okay, camps are down, I'd press spacebar and I'd look at the map and I'd be like, so what, what would I do? Like, and I would think like, okay, I would pink ward the pixel brush and then I'd walk in, get a deep ward on Raptors and then I would look top, see if there's a potential dive. If not, I would back off recall and then go bot side again. Like I would try to tell, I would try to ask myself what I would do and then see how they like played out the situation as well. During um, So this is during their replay watching their replays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. During their replay. So, watching. so this is, this is a question I get a lot actually in, in the Q and a show is like, how do we, how do you remember mm-hmm. what to do in game? And basically this is the answer. What you're talking about is like you build a really robust mental imagery of like, um, essentially of like what you're watching, right? You're, you're saturating yourself in all of this footage in all this game tape of like, like the model of what you want to be or, or what you're aspiring to be or what you're, you're trying to be better than or whatever. And then, and then mm-hmm. it's like, it's inescapable in the game that your brain is dwelling on this. And also, uh, forecasting is a really, really powerful tool for essentially like correcting, uh, like misconceptions. So what you're describing now makes so much sense because it's like you essentially you're forecasting the imagery and then you're like seeing if if you got it right or not. So this is something that that um, is now like spreading around in other sciences. Like for example, in sur- not in surgery, in uh, cancer diagnosis, they're trying to figure out how it is to train experts in cancer diagnosis off of X-rays. And what they found is like it's much better to have a bunch of 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 test X-rays of like cases and then have the doctor. Because like the normal way is is like okay you diagnose something and then you wait two weeks and then and then like a biopsy comes and then the person cancels their appointment and then you find out like six weeks later if you were right or wrong so the feedback loop is really 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 big it's too big for the brain but your feedback loop is you you stop and you predict it and then you get the feedback see if you were right or wrong if you guessed it right or wrong like right there so the feedback is really really close and so that's what they're doing yeah. now is they're trying to bring forecast and then feedback like as close as they can to each other so you were like essentially Mm -hmm. doing that which then that like locks something very powerful in the brain and then when you go into your own game like it's there you've learned it but like really learned it not just kind of like just watched it blank slate without any sort of like 
work beforehand to like get it into your head. So that's cool. Mm-hmm. What something else you mentioned was um, you would focus really hard. What is your experience with flow state and focus? Did you know what flow state means, or should I use, should I describe it or use a different word? I think I know what it means, but I'd, I'd want to hear what your like the exact definition that you're using it. So like it's like being in the zone or in flow state, mm-hmm. which means it's an intense it's an intense moment of like full concentration where you feel mm-hmm. either that you like only see one thing or that you see and experience everything, but you have perfect clarity over that. And usually it's accompanied with time dilation. So like things slow down or like mm-hmm. six hours goes by in the blink of an eye and you don't even realize it. Um, and, and then also with like, with like very good foreknowledge. Like for example, you can see the Nidalee spear coming and you can see yourself moving in slow motion. just like, like walking so easily mm-hmm. around it that it's like, it's kind of like you're at your full potential and it comes with a hundred percent confidence and, but also mm-hmm. complete um, lack of judgment. Like your brain shuts off in terms of like right and wrong. You're just in it. You're just in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I definitely think that I was like, I, I guess that comes down to like being, clutch or whatever i think that was always um i was always good at focusing and not letting the other side and like blocking things out but um yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not sure if i i I never felt like things like slowed down the only time where i felt like things actually slowed down was like that gragas e-flash that i had at madison square garden and i think that that was just because i like thought about it so hard while i was like going into the gank like i like I was thinking, like, as I came around the corner, I already was like, okay, he's going to flash. I'm going to try to predict the flash. Like, I was, I was, I'd already prepared myself for it so far in advance that it felt like, since I was waiting for that moment, I'm like, okay, I'm going to E at him. And if he flashes, I'm like, I already had my mouse moved. And it's like, if he flashes, I'm flashing. If he flashes, I'm flashing. That was just Mm -hmm. my mentality. And then that felt like slow, but nothing like that ever, like, like when I stole Barons or things like that, it never was like, it never felt slow. It was just like, all right, just go for it, you know, type of thing. Like, I would just, tell myself all i would do is i would just try to tell myself like i would give myself positive like thoughts before it like i would go into mentality with with the mentality of like i'm gonna like get this fucking baron like i would just tell myself i was gonna get it because it felt it made me feel like i was gonna get it and then i would just get it a higher percentage of the time than when i was like kind of like oh i hope i don't miss it type thing so but i never felt like you know skill shots or anything like came like super slow or anything like that like it never felt like time slowed down it was just more like I would just try to hype myself up for it in a way. And your ability to, to basically focus hard enough to ignore things. Um, basically it's uh, the, what we know about concentration is that it's impossible to ignore things. You can't, you can't choose to ignore something, but you can choose to focus hard enough on one thing that you don't have any attention left over for something else, which means you're ignoring it. Right. So that's why like what ignoring is, is like, you're so good at focusing that you can like, not see other stuff. So that means that your focus capability or like your skill at focusing or your focus muscle, however you want to put it, is like really, really strong. Um, like where did that come from in your self-analysis? Like why are you volitionally able to focus very hard by choice? Because um, this is a skill. You can train it. We know that you can train to get better at it and worse at it. And we know that people that don't train it throughout their parenting and their upbringing like don't have it. Yeah, I think that it, like a lot of it did come from like my my parenting and my upbringing because like that was kind of like what you know when I had my first few like clutch moments or whatever like even when I played sports you know my parents would tell me that I was like good at focusing so then when I was like in the moment I would tell myself like like when I started getting thoughts of like you know oh there's like this many people watching or whatever I would just be like what do I have to do like what do I actually have to do in game so I would just think about 
yeah, just break it down to like the basics of like hitting the jungle camp, like kiting the jungle camp perfectly. Like, okay, what am I going to do after this? I'm going to drop the word. Like, what are we looking to do? And I think that another thing that helped me was just being communicative um, to my teammates. I think that that was really important because it helped me focus on the game. Like just asking people questions, like, and then hearing their feedback, it just helped me like, you know, really think about what I'm, what I'm doing. Cause I would have like specific questions like, okay, like, do you think this guy worded here? Okay, well I'm going to drop a word and then I'm going to back like, um, like, or I'll be got like, it, Oh, this guy is like pushed out, pushed out. Like I want to go up, up here. Like, do you think we can kill him? Like, I'm going to try it. I'm going to, I'm going to go for this. Like now that type of mentality, um, or that, that type of like communication with my teammates just so helped important. me. Yeah. Just like, think about what I'm actually supposed to be thinking about instead of, uh, you know, kind of just like zoning out. I mean, I guess that's the thing that's different about jungle is like, I don't have a real like lane just be focusing on like super minuscule things. Like I obviously have to like kite jungle camps. Well, and, you know, be like aware of where the other jungler is, but it's not like, like I can have like a better global sense of the game than right. a laner because they're stuck so, laning. So to explicate the science behind this, like, um, essentially, what you were describing is exactly so so you would have like these these ideas okay there's people watching right whenever you were you playing soccer what sport were you playing when you're uh, parents baseball are you playing my... baseball okay cool baseball the american sport yeah 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 um at least of that generation oh man all of so this is funny because i mean it's not funny sorry i know it's a meme on your channel but you're old enough you're one of the few people i talked to that's old enough to play have played dota one back in 2004 five like i was playing dota back from 2002 to 2005 till till warcraft came out then i got sucked into warcraft but um but anyway and also to have parents who made you play baseball which is like like yeah. shortly after that generation it was like all about football mm-hmm. and all about basketball but um that's really cool i feel like we're yeah i mean i was also I, I think that it's also just like where i was, grew up because I was, I was from miami and it's like huge hispanic influence and like oh my right. baseball is huge in miami huge. like all dominican republic in florida cuba like, yeah, in, yeah, it's, yeah it's absurd so it's close to all the um, Hispanic countries as well. But the other thing is the weather, um, like the weather allows you to play baseball all year round. So every team that has like training camps, they all go to every team like the, yeah, they Pirates. all have them in Florida. Yeah. All yeah. Yeah. Dodgers, everything. So, so you would, um, you, you would have this thought like, okay, uh, people are watching. Right. And then, so, but this mm-hmm. is basically a future thought. This is a, uh, judgmental, thought about like a potential future right it's not even about a real future so because well obviously because there's no real future but it's about a potential future and then you would say like okay, what do i have to do and that's bra- dragging your brain back to the present moment and the other tools that we use to do this in mindfulness training are breath and communication right because you can only ever have a conversation in the present moment like it's impossible to have a conversation with somebody uh if you're really engaged in the conversation if i'm focusing on what you're saying and listening that's not in the past or the future. Like, it's only now. So if you're communicating with teammates, that's one of the, like, surefire ways that, like, for example, I train other teams to get themselves out of the past and the stupid mistake they just made or whatever and back into the present and, like, focusing on the game. So these yeah, are two, like, like really next? concrete tools that you would use to get, like, that present moment focus. And what we know about focus is, like, it's a it's like a pie, right? Like a, You could say mm-hmm. almost like a whole pie. And so if you have, a, like, 40% of it focused on some past event or worry or frustration <laughs> about the future or like what Reddit's going to say, then that's like, mm-hmm. you only have 60% of focus for your actual execution. And let's say the other jungler yeah. or player is at like 90% focus. It doesn't matter if they're worse than you. If they're more present, then they're probably going to execute better. Yeah. Um, okay. That's really, 
That's really interesting. And the other thing you mentioned there along the lines that I heard was like self-talk, where you said you would self-talk yourself in terms of positive psychology. Um, I'm curious as to whether there's other self-talk that's not just like blind positive psychology, like I can do it, I can do it, but like other mantras that you have used in your entertainment career, your business career, or your streaming career that have allowed you to like um, push through when your motivation wasn't there, just in terms of like discipline and in helping you make decisions. Mm. I mean, I, I think for, for the business side of things, it's more just like thinking about like what you worked for and like just understanding how streaming does snowball, right? Like to get to the point where I was making, well, however much a month um, that I'm making now, like to get to that point, I needed to uh, like put in work, right? And every day you don't stream, you lose subs. Every, every time you like have a bad stream, you probably like lose viewers. So I'll just kind of view it as like, I need to keep this going if I want to like, you know, so your self talk is about like the, the like the long term commitment and the value of like the the grind essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's essentially, just all about okay. the the grind. It's like I've grinded so hard to get here. That's why I don't take many days off. You know, like earlier this year, I did sixty five days straight. Like I didn't take a day off in sixty five days because I I knew that it's like if I do take like a day off, it kind of snowballs. You know, like that that's how I am at least. I'll take a day off oh. and I'll be like, wow, I got to do all this stuff that I want to do. You know. And it's like fun, you know, and you're like, oh, wow, I wish I had like another day I could do that. And then the next day, it's like harder to turn on the stream. And after a while, it's just like you're you're not even streaming anymore. That's how you end up in like a three week break like Tyler one where you try to get challenger for like for like a month straight. It's just it just feels good after a while to like, oh, I don't have any commitments. I don't have to do anything. So I try to like keep myself away from that <coughs> because I, I know how I respond to it. Like I respond very like, like yeah, I mean, I enjoy like that, that thing. And I think that that was kind of what was good um, about the pro-life is you do have like, you know, you have like at least like a break, you know, every now and then like where it's like, oh, you might have, I mean, let's say you go to Worlds or something, maybe it's less, maybe it's only like 10 days or something. But um, like we never, like normally our seasons, we would end in like September and we wouldn't have to like start scrimming again until like mid-November, you know? So we actually did have a break where I could do what I wanted, you know? And that seasonal, um, that seasonality of like life is actually really, I think in sport, really healthy because you can go like 100% all in and then you can go 100% all out. Do you try to mimic that in your like your approach to streaming a business as well? Or are you just um, like 100% all in and you're just going to be like, this is my next seven years and I'll go all out like when, I, when yeah, I'm done with that? That's or? pretty much how it is. I mean, it's essentially the way I, what happened is I just started like making enough money where I was like, wow, if I like do this for like seven, eight years, I'll literally be able to live off the like returns of my money in the in the market you know so i'm just at this point i'm just like okay even if i feel like not doing something like i'm just gonna grind it for right now because i can set like everything up with this yeah. you know like this is this this can and the value overrides any stress. sort of like meandering emotion of the day and stuff like that, that yeah like, exactly like, exactly like guiding star okay cool yeah the, va- the value of uh being able to to make my and and it's also just like the fear of um you know the uncertainty of you know, I, I don't have a college degree. Like, right, you left college the, for this life, yeah. Yeah, I, I left college for this life. And if I do, if I ever was just completely out of esports and I had to start over, like, where I was in college, you know, I'm super far behind. You know, I'm seven, eight years behind where I so, so would have been. So, the positive thing is that um, I'm not really sure that this is backed up by research, but it, it's certainly backed up by anecdotal experience, um, both, <laughs> both with myself and other, like, high-performance trainers in sport that elite performers often 
um, so so they miss out on a lot of the different experiences of their peer group, right? If you look at the like the people who are just like kind of in standard lives, there's people who veer off into like elite performance lives. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's very different paths, and the 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 interesting thing is that oftentimes when the person like leaves sport or like through injury or through like retirement or whatever and goes back and like mm-hmm. goes into the same life like they f- they feel like they're behind right because they've lost all these experiences but actually mm-hmm. socially and emotionally um and in terms of like the skills that dictate success in a lot of things like business and relationships mm-hmm. um they're often very very far ahead of their peers and the reason is because elite performance and like you know, intense business, like for example, what you're doing on Twitch, where it's pure entertainment, um, you know, mm-hmm. eight hours a day is um, a rugged environment. It's a rugged environment that tests you on a daily basis. So if you think about how many times uh, an average like person who went stayed in college, for example, would be told they are insufficient. They're an insufficient human at this moment for the task at hand. It's like maybe a couple mm-hmm. times a year, a couple times a month, mm-hmm. like maybe once a semester, you know, but like, mm-hmm. In, in League of Legends or in sport, you can be told six times a day or like even within those games, within those scrims, you can be told every five minutes that like you are insufficient. You are not up to this task. And, and it's like you're faced with this reality of who you are over and over and over again. And you just, you have two choices. You break or you accept it. And that acceptance comes with like a very powerful kind of developmental freedom. And so what we see is the like, insane development that happens with, with elite performers that like puts you so far ahead of the average population that you catch up very swiftly uh, when you, when you rejoin and then you overtake them like rapidly. So I would say, I mean, you should be afraid of it, right? Cause it's a driver. It sounds like it's motivating you and it's very powerful, but I would mm-hmm. say like you shouldn't fear it too much because your skill set in terms of transferable skills is up to the task of whatever it is that you would tackle after this for sure. Yep. Um, I probably could Hopefully. have DM'd that to you instead of like saying it on stream. But anyway, I wanted to tell everybody yeah, in the audience fine. as well so that they understand what's going on here. But, <laughs> yeah, okay. for all the elite performers in the, exactly. <laughs> in the audience, they can apply uh, it to themselves. That that's that's it. That's my first session. That's what we go through. So, um, what were Sounds what were good. some of the things that did you realize or, or understand anything uh, while you were going through this, or was it all you're um, like, oh, like yeah, it's just me. So I already know all these things. No, I just I just didn't know like um, I guess how relevant the people around me were to act, to my actual success. You know, like I think that that's actually a big thing that people overlook is just the environment that they're in and things like that. Like I don't think that I would have been a good player like at LCS if you know I didn't have if, if I like actually felt like shit about myself. You know, and I think the fact that I was like with people that always had confidence, like like Steve always had confidence, like the, from the owner, like like Mark for example, uh, Mark Z he was the analyst for last year's and he like, you know, he, he would, he, he thought I was a beast. Right. And he would tell me I was a beast. So like, I would feel like obligated to perform well, where I feel like if you're in a different situation where people think you're shit, it's probably way easier to just like, yeah, just play differently on stage, like not be able to play to your fullest and just kind of like try to not fuck up. Like that, that becomes your mentality. So in a, yeah, definitely. In a way it's gated on your own ambition. So there are people that, their own self ambition is so overwhelmingly powerful that like nothing else can dent that nobody's opinion of how good or bad they are can touch it because their, their level of ambition is literally so high. It's like, it surrounds them in a bubble, uh, mm-hmm. which actually, yeah, means, I don't think I was like that means that they aren't also, they are, so, aren't also motivated by people who are up talking them as well. Right? Like that's impervious mm-hmm. to them because like it's, mm-hmm. it's so self-centered. 
Um, so that's the case. But but otherwise, like it's very 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 important. I think in th- this is actually um, I think a new. I don't want to say a new field of research, but I was reading some new articles on it that, that make me think that like maybe support network research is like booming again because um, uh, I was looking at uh, uh, what's it called growth through through stress. So stress related growth. That's what it was. Stress related growth. S R G. Um, and uh, and in stress related growth. They, they, they were developing a model. So it was new research, right? This is a, this is a new research where it's like typically uh, anxiety is seen as a bad thing. Um, but we know in, in sport that anxiety is actually a developmental factor, that it's like a good thing, that anxiety helps us grow faster and better than other people. So how could it be a bad thing mm-hmm. all the time? Right? Maybe high anxiety is bad, but like normal anxiety, without that, there's no growth. Or at least I think there's no growth. Mm-hmm. This is a personal opinion. But there are people who are trying to prove it, anxiety-related growth, that like it's a good thing. And in the model... What they found um, when they were when they were testing the model was that support the support network was so important that it ended up being the the most and the only causal factor to determine whether or not whether or not people achieved growth through anxiety through a stressful moment or did not achieve mm-hmm. growth. It was like the one kind of factor that mediated it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So I would say like it could be, and this isn't proven yet, obviously, because it was only like two studies on this when I when I last checked. But it could be in the future that it's like really clear that support network is or or your support mm-hmm. structure is like the defining factor of success as you and so the more yep. stress you can handle and put through your support network the better and faster you grow yep okay sounds thanks good. um i'm gonna hit stop recording now. all right that's the show for you i hope that you guys enjoyed it please let me know about this new format it's obviously five times longer than the first episode but I needed to change the interviewing style because I'm not very good at interviewing. And I thought instead of spending years trying to get better at interviewing, what I should do is do the first session that I often do with eSport athletes. Since I've spent, um, gosh, eight years of my life becoming better at doing sports psychology interventions with high-level athletes, I should just replicate those skills for you. So what I did today with I Will Dominate was essentially the kind of interview that I will do you know, for the first session with any athlete that I'm working on high performance with. And the goal is to unpack their performance profile so that I can figure out what to work on. So if you're interested in in the format, if you have recommendations to change it, or if you're interested in then what I would do now, so how I would interpret this session with I Will Dominate and what kind of activities I would build off it, those are all kind of things that I've thought about, uh, you know, building on top of this. Otherwise, I'll be going on to the third interview. So if you have anybody you want to recommend, hit me up on Twitter, MindGamesWeldon. And as always, check out the sponsor of the show, which is me, mindgames.gg slash MAC. Everything that you do there supports this brand, supports me, supports the show and everything that we're doing at MindGames. Thank you for your attention and I'll see you tomorrow.